We all know the X-Men, mutant outsiders who fight for a world that hates and fears them. But what if you're a mutant outsider who exists outside of the X-Men? You might be a member, a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, or you might be a member of Excalibur or the Exiles, making a new home in the UK or jumping through countless alternate dimensions, or sometimes a little of both. Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academics who may or may not be obsessed with Nightcrawler and his alternate universe family into conversation. Today, we're talking about continent and reality-hopping X-Men spinoffs with Excalibur, The Sword is Drawn by Chris Claremont and Alan Davis, and the first arc of Exiles, Volume 1 by Judd Winnick and Mike McCone. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University, and as usual, I am joined by... I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at the University of Waterloo, St. Jerome's campus. And I'm my Dr. Michael Hancock, a postdoctoral researcher at the Games Institute at the University of Waterloo. Now, I believe Andrew is repping Excalibur, Sword is Drawn. So could you give us an intro to the world of Excalibur, Andrew? I know you're very much looking forward to it. Try to keep it under 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can do this. Uh, Excalibur The Sword is Drawn, a.k.a. Excalibur Special Edition Number 1, was created by Chris Claremont and Alan Davis in 1987 as a spin-off franchise that merged a trio of displaced X-Men with the Captain Britain mythology that had been established and cultivated by Claremont originally, uh, and then Jamie Delano, Alan Moore, and Alan Davis thereafter, all prior to the launch of this Excalibur. Claremont has said in an interview that he mostly just wanted to lure Alan Davis into the X-Universe, and history has proven this to be a successful maneuver. Excalibur, originally intended to be spelled X-C-A-L-I-B-R-E, picks up in the wake of the X-Men's Mutant Massacre crossover, which saw popular intellectual properties Kitty Pride and Kurt Wagner, aka Nightcrawler, receive severe injuries that took them off the X-Men's roster and sent them to Muir Island in Scotland to recover. Rachel Summers, a.k.a. Phoenix, a.k.a. Phoenix 2.0, meanwhile was displaced even earlier, departing from the X-Men after Wolverine stabbed her in order to prevent her from committing murder, which does seem counterintuitive. <laughs> Rachel fled right into the arms of Spiral, Mojo's right-hand woman, who happens to have six hands. Phoenix's story is a mystery from there, only resolved within this appearance in Excalibur. Interestingly, where both X-Men and Captain Britain comics were known for being grim, dark, existential tomes, Excalibur quickly executes a sharp tonal reconstitution as an upbeat, satirical text that draws from the theatrical genre of sex farce to create a number of romantic hijinks and incestuous group dynamics. We only really see the beginning of that pivot in The Sword is Drawn, but that trajectory is there. And to me, this is the real fascination with this comic series, watching two of the most tortured characters in the history of Marvel Comics, Captain Britain and Rachel Summers, respectively, get to have some good days alongside a childlike fairy princess, a childlike elven acrobat, and an actual child. We weren't quite into the grimdark 90s when Excalibur emerges, but the X-Universe and Marvel UK was already hypertrophying in that direction beforehand. So there's a real delight that comes with reading Excalibur as a change of pace. And I'm very happy that Anna chose it for today's readings, and that Michael graciously didn't fight me when I called dibs on representing it. Thank you so much, Andrew. Oh, it's going to give us so much to talk about. Okay, Michael, would you give us an introduction to Exiles? What if Quantum Leap but with X-Men? What if Suicide Squad, but also time travel? What if Marvel's What If, but with an ongoing cast? Put all of these concepts together and you have the oft-running superhero series Exiles, which takes superheroes, originally mutants, from alternate realities and charges them with fixing events that went wrong. Today we'll be looking at the first volume, Down the Rabbit Hole, which covers issues one to four of the series initials run in 2001 specifically their first mission in a Sentinel-dominated Earth, and their second to the Trial of the Phoenix. Uh, let's talk first about the creative team. The book is illustrated by Michael McCone and written by Jed Winnick. Starting in 1989, McCone did sporadic but continuous work at Marvel and DC throughout the 90s, and later would go on to do more regular work on titles such as the 2003 Teen Titans, a two-year run on the 2005 Fantastic Four, 
and the first year of the 2010 title Avengers Academy. But his first regular series is here, The Exiles, and he served as main artist for much of the two, first two years of Winnick's run, occasionally trading off duties with Jim Caliafor. Judd Winnick's career is a little more colorful. Originally a cartoonist rooming with writer Mar Brad Meltzer in the 90s, as work dried up, he was accepted as an applicant for the real world San Francisco, where he regained some public profile and met the woman he would marry. In 2000, he released Pedro and Me, a GLAAD award-winning comic detailing his friendship with Pedro Zamero, another housemate from the real life and AIDS advocate who had passed away six years earlier. At the same time, based on the popularity he gained from the real world, he struck up a friendship with editor Bob Schreck, who co-founder of the Omni Press, and gave him work that led to Winnick's Eisner-nominated Road Trip, The Adventures of Barry Ween, Boy Genius, and eventually his superhero work at Marvel and DC. According to Winnick, when approached to work on the title, Marvel gave him nothing but the remit to include Blink, and a handbook of artist sketches featuring characters that did not yet exist. The result was Exiles. In a guest column for The Middle Spaces, Adrian Resha argues that a defining trait of Exiles is mutation, not just for its cast of mutants, but for its narrative mutations, reimagining the ways in which sequential text can still evolve. Granted, she is referring to the, for now, end of the series in 2019, and its embrace of non-white male characters and reinterpretations. Despite the continual presence of Clarice Ferguson, 2001 Exiles is very different from its 2019 incarnation. Winnick's writing and McCone's tendency towards cheesecake art is characteristic of the era, that it is willing to give prominence to female heroines, but equally willing to use that prominence to put their bodies on display. Like much of Winnick's work, among the one-liners and immaturity is something deeper, something willing to be playful with Marvel's history, while also allowing the characters a degree of dignity and depth. For now, it seems like the series is a footnote of sorts in X-Men history, but who knows? Maybe Exile's greatest mutation still lies ahead of it. The reason I picked these two particular series, well, there's a variety of reasons. I think that they link together in a variety of interesting ways, and not just because they involve Nightcrawler and his daughter, though that was a hook for me. Um, but that they're both um, spin-offs of the X-Men universe um, that sort of exist on the fringes of that universe. You know, we have this spin-off into the UK with Excalibur, and then we have this reality-hopping team in Exiles, although Excalibur also becomes a reality-hopping team, so there's sort of an interesting lineage there. I wanted to ask you both about what you felt was effective, if you do find it effective, about kind of the setup of both of these worlds and both of these teams um, in terms of things like the setting that's established, the mission that's established, the characters uh, that are established. I mean, Exiles is particularly like doing a lot of work there, right? Because it's got to set mm -hmm. up all these new, mostly new characters, right? For the audience in a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe it makes more sense to start with Excalibur just because it's the one that comes first. What did you find Andrew is effective about the setup of this new series sort of, I think it does a lot of work really quickly. Like, what do we learn about kind of the characters or the setting from from the setup of the of this special edition that would launch the long running Excalibur series? What do you find effective about it? Well, I, I think it's trading on the sort of um, existing knowledge base of its audience. I, I think that's pretty clear, except only on the X Men side. So yeah, it, it's basically to me, and, and this is maybe an, an unfair way to perceive it, it, it's sort of a relaunch of Captain Britain, which was a really good mythology that, that Marvel had going that no one really found uh, as an audience. So you just take these characters from the most popular comic book in the world, uh, all these unresolved plot threads that, that Claremont had laid out, and you promise to resolve them there. But the catch is you're now a fan of Captain Britain. You didn't even realize you were. Uh, but that's the world. That's the side characters. That's the setting. That's the leader of the team, kind of. We can argue that. Um, so so to me, I think it was like a, like a really good exercise in how to rejuvenate a franchise that didn't deserve to be under the radar the way it was. Um, and maybe answering your question more directly, like I think a lot of what's happening in the sword is drawn is like like establishing the, these important relationships and how it's about the mission and how this team can carry that torch. Uh, so if you know the X-Men's mission, which is a really basic superhero mission, just, you know, be nice, uh, <laughs> be a good example kind of thing. 
Um, they can all hug around a campfire and regardless of how confused you are by like what a mojo is or why Megan acts like a child, um, you see them hugging and vowing to make the world a better place. So you're ready to go. Well, can we get a little bit more specific? Like, how are we introduced to each of the characters in in this series? Because I think that will be an interesting sort of um, contrast and linkage between the introductions and exiles, which I like, yeah, really want to talk about as well, because we get introduced sort of in media res and exiles, which is interesting. And to a certain extent, that's true of Excalibur as well. So how are we introduced to each of the characters and what does it tell us about their characters in Excalibur? Well, I think the basic premise of the sword is drawn in particular is these are broken people. And by the end, mm -hmm. you've provided a solution by which they're not going to be broken people anymore. So mm -hmm. Kitty and Nightcrawler are drowning in grief. Um, Captain Britain is um, like drinking himself to death, which is a, a very Brian thing to do. Uh, and, and Megan, who, I mean, this is a problematic thing, but I do think it's it's foregrounded in a way that I like. She She lives for Brian. So mm -hmm. his suffering creates her suffering. Uh, and then the Phoenix is, um, or sorry, Rachel, I should say, is um, displaced, severed, trying to atone for something that she did. So everybody's in this place of being discarded, like the intellectual properties were in some ways discarded. So there's a nice meta element there. Uh, and then mm -hmm. through this sense of um, like immediate purpose in just coming together to solve a pretty simple conflict that's thrown at them, um, get Phoenix clear of this werewolf situation. Uh, they realize what they are, which is heroes, and that's how they're going to quit being broken people, really. So, like, it's a really simple framing mechanism, but it works. It's it's, it's really mm -hmm. well executed. Yeah, I do not... I have never read The Mutant Massacre, but I still felt their grief. Well, what about Exiles? Let's flip over to how the characters are introduced there. Like, what do we... I think it's very... Um, economic and how it introduces yeah. the characters and sort of gets yes. us caught up in who they are. So tell us a little bit about that, Michael. Yeah. Uh, basically what happens in Exiles is that uh, we start with our focal character, Blink, and one by one, the others are sort of just appear, literally just appear. And once the team is gathered together, there is a magical bartender who <laughs> yes who basically just uh helpfully exposition dumps every character's origin and where it's gone tragically wrong uh to them and it kind of works diegetically in the sense that none of these characters know each other either it is something that is fairly consistent with the series which is like i know that when it kind of started with blink and worked backwards but Blink is very helpful in the sense that as she is the one who is furthest from the X-Men as we know it, she gets to serve the role as person the events are explained to pretty frequently. And mm -hmm. I think that really works in terms of helping new readers. Uh, that was the case when I was reading the title that uh, I started reading X-Men in the 90s. So often some of the worlds that they go to are not really part of my background or weren't at the time. And... I think it really helped solidify some of the connection with Blink there. Yeah, I mean, because so we're kind of, we're introduced, as I mentioned before, sort of, well, in media res isn't quite right, but I mean, we're introduced sort of in this desert in the middle of nowhere, right, with the characters just being dropped in through portals, like into this desert, right, and then having to introduce mm -hmm. each other to each other, right? So we like learn a lot really quickly. We're like, oh, Nocturne is the daughter of Nightcrawler, because, you know, Blink knows Nightcrawler, and then they like introduce each other, and then... You know, they know versions of each other from various places. Like, and, the, and the reader would, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So, like, it's just what you're saying, right? They're sort of explaining these things to Blink, but they're sort of catching the reader up as well. I, find it, I found it, like, a very effective way at sort of introducing things because that sort of unknowingness and sort of instability that you feel while reading it and, like, where are these people? They're in the middle of nowhere. What's going on? How did they get here? Like, mirrors what the characters are supposed to be feeling. So it's very effective in that way. Yeah. What about... 
what about the setting for either one? Because I want to get us sort of to talking about what is the kind of like cult appeal of both of these series. And you talked, Andrew, about sort of Excalibur facilitating a very kind of, I mean, the X-Men are always about friendship, but this like sheer amount of like hugs and togetherness and like <laughs> reunion, like sort of emphasis and sword is drawn. I mean, what about the setting of either of these ones sort of speaks to kind of the mission or sort of, you know, the way that the characters are allowed to sort of exist in this space or grow in this space? I, I think five freaks in a lighthouse is a pretty, <laughs> pretty good trapping to create these sort of familial bonds. Um, I, I do think some of that's a little forced. Like at the end of Sword is Drawn, when they're like, okay, let's go be X-Men. And Brian and Megan are like, well, we got nothing else to do either. We'll dedicate <laughs> our lives to your mission as well. And you're maybe thinking... Isn't Brian like the dedicated protector of all of England? Doesn't he have other stuff he's supposed to be doing? Nope. <laughs> he's an X-Man now. Um, so, so I do think they need to isolate him. The other thing that I would say in maybe sort of, I, I think the Captain Britain mythology goes through this sort of threefold transition. So when Claremont first creates it, it's very like, I don't know, um, simulacrum of Britain. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like a Disneyland interpretation of what Britain is. And then when Delano and Moore take over, they very much ground it and it starts to look like a real kind of, you know, British experience. And then I think Excalibur slides it back the other way a little bit. So it's a little bit more cartoony Britain uh, or, or sort of, um, I don't know, idealized Britain even maybe. So I, I think that's part of the backdrop, this idea of this kind of theme park version of Britain. Uh, and that maybe sets the tone a little bit more for the, the, the sort of funner elements of Excalibur. But I'm kind of well. The amount there. of kind of you know metaphors of like the stage and performance and stuff too. Like it opens right with Kitty Pride having this dream in which you did a great Claremont thread um, run right. thread about this recently, Andrew. So maybe you could walk us through that opening scene with Kitty and the significance of that. Uh, so this is maybe the the beginning of Excalibur's fourth wall break, which is going to be a, a really important element in the series, and again helps create that shift in tone from the grimdark X Men. But the opening is a dream Kitty has in which the X-Men is a, like an elaborate Hollywood studio movie. And you got everybody just sort of offset acting kind of shallow and, and I don't know, not really what they are. But in some ways, like, like Storm is a diva. Her character is not a diva, but the intellectual property kind of is in Marvel Comics continuity at this point. Uh, Wolverine is getting a pedicure and Havoc is, my, it's cruel to Havoc, Havoc is sitting in a chair <laughs> labeled understudy. <laughs> And um, from that nightmare, Rachel intervenes and Kitty helps her by phasing her and wakes up and in theory creates the means by which Rachel gets Rachel gets into the, the actual reality. So it's Excalibur sort of taking down X-Men as a franchise, which I guess is appropriate because it's Claremont writing it. Um, sort of taking the piss, I guess, would be the best British appropriate way to say this because it's deflating that self-seriousness in order to empower Excalibur to be something different. Uh, in, in wrestling terminology, which I know Anna knows a little bit about, this would be like getting over, as they say. And, and mm -hmm. I think that's what that dream sequence is really doing. Uh, establishing this is not going to be another X-Men. I mean, I have, as I know that you know, a little bit of a pet theory that sort of Excalibur extends in a lot of ways, almost kind of directly from the characterization of Nightcrawler in particular. And I mean, mm -hmm. in terms of this is set in like the Captain Britain world, and yet kind of the nature of the story, like sort of the comedy focus and the sort of combination of drama and comedy is very unlike like kind of the Captain Britain comics that had come before that. They did have some comedy, but I mean, Excalibur seems like quite a departure. And I mean, I definitely, if you happen to be a Captain Britain fan, I could see how you wouldn't necessarily yeah. be super thrilled with his Excalibur portrayal. <laughs> I mean, he's quite a buffoon in um, Excalibur in a lot of ways. And in some ways, like a buffoon to set up, you know, particularly I would argue Kitty and Kurt is being a lot more competent. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, do you think there's anything to that pet theory, Andrew? I have to ask you at least like a hundred percent. No, I, I think you're dead on there. If there was one character who defines the character of the Excalibur team, it's Nightcrawler. Uh, and as you said, Captain Britain, the big transition there is like in the, the more Delano stuff, he's in over his head and it's tragic. Uh, and in Excalibur, he's in over his head and it's hilarious. <laughs> uh, and that that's really the pivot that I think they're they're working through. So yeah, I can see 
Captain Britain fans being offended. But no, I, I completely agree. This is a swashbuckling universe. This is a, a playful universe that has a sense of like um, idealism the way Kurt has. And, and that creates certain seriousness to it uh, and values the way that Kurt has values. But it's fun. It wants to play uh, as Nightcrawler does. So, no, I think he's completely setting the tone here. Can I, just because it like leads into sort of a discussion of a particular scene that I find interesting, how do you see that contrast between sort of the characters of, and also sort of the character growth for both of the characters? One of my favorite scenes from Sword is Drawn is when Nightcrawler confronts Captain Britain um, after his like uh, drunken episode at the lighthouse and they have like a fight about what it means to be a hero and what their responsibilities are and everything. Could you walk us through some of the beats of that scene, Andrew, which I'm sure you know well, um, because I think it's a really, for me anyway, the first time I read Excalibur, like that was a real like character building scene for like Nightcrawler in so many ways. I mean, yeah. I could not even imagine him like having like a fight like that with like, say, Logan, even though you mm. think that would have happened at some point in time. But to see him like get angry in that way and like actually sort of express his idea of heroism in this way and sort of express vulnerability in this way. What do you see as like the contrast between those two characters that sort of comes across in that scene? Well, I think there's layers to it, as you're saying. I think if I were to essentialize it, I would say Nightcrawler's um, dialogue is a monologue. He's projecting. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he's not explaining what a hero is to Captain Britain. He's explaining what a hero is to himself after he's yeah. suffered a kind of bad incident. Um, it, it, it's, again, establishing kind of a hierarchy, establishing Kurt as a sort of um, a moral compass. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think it's also really important. The thing we haven't talked about is I would argue in both cases, maybe all three cases. So Kitty, um, Kurt and Rachel. These are characters that had run their course in X-Men. I, mm -hmm. I know there'd be pushback on Kitty, but like Claremont was out of ideas for Kurt. I think that's pretty clear within the X-Men group dynamic. Uh, and he ports them over to Excalibur and he's got a new opportunity, a new chance to do something with them. Uh, so Kurt um, um, asserting himself the way he does in that scene, to me, that's Kurt deciding that he's going to be more than a side character. That, that That's him deciding that he's ready to be the kind of hero that he wishes Captain Britain was. Though I think it's cool that the scene doesn't even necessarily suggest that Kurt is aware that he is talking to himself, that mm -hmm. he feels like he's just, you know, trying to motivate Brian. But I think all the fans of Nightcrawler know that this is this is Kurt psyching himself up. The X-Men are dead. He's got to step up now. And he does. Well, I love that. I love that sort of contrast between the two of them. The way like Captain Britain is this like blonde, super handsome, enormous superhero guy who's like set up like genetically, like in terms of heredity to be this certain kind of hero. But he has to get like lectured and taught like what a hero is from Kurt, which is like a pretty obvious kind of like little like metaphorical thing that they're doing. But I, one that I find pretty effective. Yeah, as a commentary um, on privilege, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just, that scene, like, I always, like, think about the behind the scenes of it, and I'm just like, how did Kurt even get all the way over there? Did he have yep. to, like, like drive? <laughs> or, like, he doesn't have any money, and, like, he's, like, this demon guy who's got to get, like, from one, like, end of the country to the other, and I'm always so, like, worried about everything he went through, just, like, between those. There's, like, such a vulnerability to him there, and, like, a reality to him that really, like, my heart, like, went out so much. Let's get back to this setting question, and I, we're going to get back to character for sure, but I wanted to ask you, Michael, about like the setting of Exiles, because to a certain extent, Exiles doesn't have a setting, right? They're just sort of jumping between these different realities and stuff. So whereas, whereas Excalibur, they have kind of the closeness of everybody being in this like lighthouse, and there's like this kind of dom domesticity and kind of like intense emotionality to that space, even though we don't see that that much in Sword is Drawn. How does Exiles function in terms of setting, in terms of it being like a non-setting? Well, you could flip that around, I think. The, you could argue that the setting is, their setting is the creative space of the Marvel Universe. That mm. I have to continually remind myself sometimes it is not a time travel book, but in effect it basically is. In that, oh, yeah. Once you're doing alternate dimensions, you can be like, they wind at different times and who yeah. cares? Yeah. <laughs> And it's like this first arc covers essentially maybe not the greatest hits as uh, when looking over the first two issues. It's not technically a Sentinel run world. It just has the same end result of it. The second one, absolutely. The Trial of the Phoenix is very much a 
let's replay a classic moment in X-Men history. It's like, yeah, let's, let's take event, a moment, a setting within the X-Men or within Marvel at large, and let's, let's turn that into a playground for a few issues. It allows you to go pretty much anywhere and do anything. It's kind of, it's a mutation that you can explore whatever variation you want. The downside to that is that, like, it means that the stake is basically the fate of the world in every comic, and it's hard to get attached to a world you are seeing for the first time. Uh, I think it compensates with that eventually by buying more and more into the characters, that we care specifically about how these characters interact with this new world. To what extent do you see it as being commentary on various aspects of Marvel history? I mean, the Trial of the Phoenix one is interesting in particular in some of the changes that it makes to that mm-hmm. story and sort of dealing with, uh, and I know this is something Andrew will be able to speak to as well, but like dealing with the multiple ways that that story has been rewritten. And, you know, they're sort of like, no, that was never Jean who was Dark Phoenix. Jean was <laughs> oh, at the yeah. bottom of the ocean and she wasn't the one that was evil where it's just like, okay, well, that was like three reboots like later. And then, but then they're like, no, this Jean is Dark Phoenix. And it's like, do you see Exiles sort of entering these moments of kind of Marvel history or context to to critique or comment on them? I mean, is it sort of speaking to a fan consciousness in that way? Is the setting like fandom of Marvel? I would say like Morph in particular works really well with that as the Oh god, I so want to talk about Morph. Yeah, <laughs> please. Uh he is very much, I think, the Marvel fan as stereotyped in the start of the twenty first century. Like early two thousands was still I think I think the early two thousands at least for Marvel, I don't have the background to say the same about DC, but for Marvel it was really a transition point where they were getting more overt about including female characters, including more racially diverse and uh, more queer characters or explicitly queer characters, but also still very centered on this, well, stereotypical fanboy. And Morph, basically his body is an in-joke, that he can shapeshift into whatever comedy beat is needed. But also he becomes very much a male gaze surrogate in the way that he is constantly hitting on the other team members, well, the female team members. Uh, he reminds me very much of 80s Beast Boy. Uh, oh, in that yeah. kind of time. Yeah, which isn't a good thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I think that's maybe the negative side of that kind of fandom play, but it also allows some really interesting exploration and it goes into places that are very interesting later on in the series as well. Uh, Mariko Sunfire does not get, Mariko as Sunfire doesn't get much uh, page time or development in this particular arc, but Uh, She is going to be revealed to be gay, and I think she's one of the earlier Marvel gay superheroes. Uh, Yeah. It is pushing in directions that really show how Marvel fandom is changing, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah, America does get a really, like... I liked it. Like, I mean, later story arc um, where she has a relationship with um, Mary Jane, who is Spider Woman in her universe, and they have a couple of issues where they have an intense relationship, and then it ends in tragedy, of course, when Mariko has to be teleported to the next location. But that was satisfying for me to finally like have her like queerness made manifest, which mm-hmm. um, she yeah. ends up revealing it to Morph relatively early. But yeah, like it doesn't sort of get man- made manifest until those couple of issues where she actually gets to have a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean. I'm going to guess you guys are going to agree with me that, I mean, based on what you just said, Michael, that, I mean, Morph's sexual harassment has not aged well and (laughs) is infuriating. And if there's like a thing that kind of ruins this whole title for me, it would have to be that. I wouldn't say Claremont's characters are less sexual in in that kind of sense, but uh, Claremont, at least at the beginning of Excalibur, uh, keeps it more subtext. And I I think that... uh, lets the book age a lot better than this one has, despite 20-some or 15-some years between them. 
Yeah, I for think, me, I think it wouldn't be like so much. It's not the overtness so much as the way. Oh yeah, it's yeah. Done. The, like as you said, like I mean, more kind of being yeah. set up as this surrogate character. So like it takes away because I actually really like kind of like the you know sexual liberation of like a character like Nocturne. I actually like had like a lot of things that I liked about the way her character is. I mean, yeah, it's like one of those like, you know, sexy girl empowerment things like again, but you know, it did fit her character as being this sexually unashamed character who like pursues her passions and everything, which actually seems like a pretty logical extension of like Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, having more constantly be like your breasts, your butt, everything, everything, everything yeah. all the time takes away her empowerment so there much. Is, yeah. <laughs> like, I've read a few more issues and like, the team goes through an absolutely tragic loss. Next issue, a montage of trying on underwear. Like, it's, yeah. Uh, it's so totally but, weird. I, I think that's the issue, though, right? Like, it's not that, that Morph is sexist. You can have a sexist character. It's that his sexism is validated yes. by, mm-hmm. by the visual mm-hmm. artistry, which, yeah. and to some extent, the narrative, right? Yeah. I'd argue both, yeah. Like to me, it's like the justification, the narrative that I had more problems with. Like, don't necessarily have problems with sexy characters. It's just like, no. you know, it's that he felt like a fan surrogate character, and we're like, he we're in on his jokes about the female characters, which you know makes any liberation that they would have represented really undercut because he's being like, it's just a joke. Like they're just here to be sexy. Like you know what I'm talking about, and I'm like, oh, so you're not talking to me as a female reader? Then that's very clear. Well, Which I'm is... not sure if this was in our issues. Michael can confirm this if he's read ahead a little bit. But there's a scene between um, Calvin and Clarice where, for no reason, they're, like, having a strategy meeting and she's in her underwear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... <laughs> in, like, I, a Wayne Gretzky that's... kind of jersey, too. Like, yeah, yeah I think that's <laughs> in our set, yeah. And he's, he's, she, she says to him, um, are you checking out my butt? And she, he says, well, yeah. And then she walks away seductively and says, right answer, hero, or something like that. <laughs> Basically saying, no, it's totally cool to all go women and, and talk about it. They like that. She was also wearing, like, underwear <laughs> yeah, and a shirt true. that doesn't cover her butt. <laughs> so, I mean, that's not a thing you just, like, generally walk around in with someone you're not in a relationship with. But, you know, whatever. Unless you're in this comic where, again, that character can become this, this, this idealized fantasy. And for me, that's the problem. That's the difference with Excalibur is those moments strip Clarice and Nocturne of their agency, right? That That's what they're lacking. Because, like, when Megan is doing some weird sexual thing with Nightcrawler, it makes sense, because Megan is a character who's fully <laughs> realized. Some weird sexual thing with Nightcrawler. <laughs> <laughs> just, just my opinion. But like, I, I felt, in general, that Winnick doesn't have their voices. Like, I feel like a lot of the, the text bubbles, you could actually interchange them between characters. And yeah, okay, Thunderbird said this instead of Mimic. I think it, there's a lot going on with... Uh, well, maybe this is a good uh, pivot point uh, in terms of fandom. Uh, the way the text uses Jean Grey in the second arc is very interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. That I would say she 100 percent like conforms to what we've been talking about that she becomes this object essentially for a bunch of male characters to define themselves against right it's not the the second arc is all about we have to kill jean gray because she's going to become dark phoenix and it's in a way kind of an echo of the first arc that the first arc becomes oh no it turns out charles xavier is evil Uh, they were ahead of the curve on that (laughs) <laughs> Charles Xavier wouldn't be officially evil until a little while later. Yeah, I, I think this is very typical of the of both the problem and the strength of Winnick's writing, that there is a scene in the first part of that where uh, Mimic has a confrontation with Wolverine, and it describes in just a few text boxes how deeply connected this Mimic is to Wolverine, what the moment means for him. But it still comes down to commiserating their secret love for Jean Grey. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and there's another yeah. thing where, like, Warren says that he loves Jean and like, the, yep. same, the next issue. And I'm like, okay, sure. I think he says it when they're killing her, right? He's yeah. like carrying yeah. Wolverine and he's like, I loved her too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, great. So glad you got a moment, Warren. That's great. <laughs> I appreciate giving some depth to Mimic, a character who is basically 
the single plot beat the regular mimic has ever had is that it sounds like this character should be a bigger deal than he is. <laughs> yeah. But it still comes down to this making Gene a cipher. And I, I, I have not, okay, confession, I have never actually read the original trial of the Phoenix. Uh, I've, seen the, I've seen the cartoon, which I'm sure is pretty much the same. It's the best iteration, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how much, like, was that part of the Claremont original? Yes, and actually really parallel to the scenes we see in Exiles, where they have this, like, um, evening before, where everybody is reflecting on their relationships kind of thing. So I thought it was picking up that parallel really effectively. I, I, I want to say here, I, I don't think Winnick is a bad writer. I think his plots are spectacular. Mm -hmm. uh, he's great at that. I just felt that he didn't have the characters' voices. Uh, that was my complaint, especially and Clarice, because if you've read Age of Apocalypse uh, or Fowling's Covenant, she's not like that at all. He sort of yeah. Just and my complaint her. about her would be like I felt like in the first like issue or two, well, especially the first issue, I thought that there was going to be kind of like a good kind of friendship contrast set up between her and Nocturne, where she was going to be kind of this serious one who like is like no nonsense and everything, but then like that and like Nocturne is like this fun one who like is going to like push her in another direction. They're going to play off of each other, and that sort of didn't really materialize like I was hoping because they yeah. just kind of make Clarice just another sexy, colorful girl, and I'm like, oh, okay, sure. Whatever. Yeah, the female characters are unfortunately kind of interchangeable for a lot of this. Exactly. They're cool yeah. characters, though. They're really cool yeah. characters. Uh, I mean, other writers yeah, have done like great stuff. I like both of them a lot. I yeah. just, well, yeah, I, and I do like I do like Nocturne a lot too, and I even like the thing where they go to that mall in the first arc, and then they have to go and like find some new clothes. <laughs> and like, Blink is like, "You're both wearing less clothes than you were before." <laughs> Like, I mean, I don't know. I sort of like that because, you know, I like Nocturne being this sexually adventurous character and everything and that being kind of part of, because she's this character who is the daughter of Nightcrawler. She's grown up with the X-Men. She's got like no shame, no fear about anything. And like, yeah, it's very like sexually liberated and everything. And that made total sense with me in terms of a read of the character. I just had too much trouble with her ending up being interchangeable with Blink like relatively quickly because I think if they'd been clearly identified as different female characters that would have like worked a little bit better yeah they need to have a dynamic well maybe this is a good transition into talking about the female characters in excalibur because i think that that's one of its real strengths that it has three really interesting female characters with different power sets and different personalities and even under the pencil of alan davis like sort of distinct body types i mean he's got a type definitely alan but um but still like there's like a little bit of bodily diversity there um what do you think about sort of as a contrast to exile sort of what's perhaps done a little bit better in terms of sort of female characters in in that old chestnut that we always go back to strong female characters in excalibur how are they sort of done a little bit more effectively do you think can i throw this at michael because i haven't heard his thoughts on excalibur yet yeah. and I, just, I just cheap shot at his characters in exiles uh fair well one of the things that struck me is something that also holds true for exiles and i think is relatively rare in both of their eras that these are two teams with a female majority with a majority of female characters and i think that opens up a lot of possibilities i mean one of the reasons why storm and phoenix get relegated to kind of the female character in their early versions is that there was no other female character right. and once you have more of them once they are more of the team then Hopefully, you come up with something to help them contrast with each other. I'll admit, one of my, an, another one of the reasons I found it difficult to get into Excalibur initially is that when I was originally coming from it or attempting to read it in, I think, 2008 or so, I didn't really know who Rachel was. Mm -hmm. And the comic doesn't really do a great job of establishing that for if you're not familiar with the X-Men, but it does give a pretty sharp contrast between the three of them. Yeah. That uh, you get Megan as a little more childlike, feels a bit condescending. Sheltered? Um, sheltered. Yes, I think she dropped. Kitty has a sense of, in the initial, I think she's defined a lot by the tragedy she's experiencing, which is which makes sense that the X-Men defined a major part of her life up to this point. 
Uh, Rachel gives a sense of being a bit harder, uh, in part presumably because of the uh, imprisonment she's just gone through. The backstory of her break away from the X-Men doesn't really come out, but at least there's a firm differentiation between them and a firm sense of these characters would approach situations differently. That comes through immediately mm-hmm. and uh, does not form a great... Uh, Exiles does not come off looking great in that comparison. I know Morph and I know uh, Thunderbird would handle things differently than the other characters, but not much beyond that. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think it's all about the contrast. The, the The cast of Excalibur has the massive advantage of being pre-existing characters that have been built up mm-hmm. over years and years and years. Um, so there's complexity there from the get-go, and it's a good ensemble. They have, as you said, different perspectives. You, you know that they're going to react to things in a different way, and that's really what makes the internal tension of the group dynamic thrive in a way that I don't think Exiles has a lot of internal tension beyond, like, you know, romantic tension and stuff like that. Well, it gets there mostly by having evil members on the team. Yeah, <laughs> which is a thing and, and works, but, I mean like like kitty i really like kind of the tracy flick elements of that character of this person is smarter than everyone else in the room but they're still a child <laughs> uh and, and then megan is this extreme sheltered kimmy schmidt type character mm. uh, that leaves you questioning the validity of her relationship and makes you especially sensitive to how brian treats her mm-hmm. uh, and then rachel as you said is coming off this massive tragedy she's an isolationist character by nature who's now in this found family with tremendous power like, there's a lot happening with these female characters and, and male characters as well. So I just think there's so much simmering underneath that that's what makes the dynamic really come to life. And as I said, that's that's purely an advantage that Excalibur has that Exiles can't have from Go. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. But I mean, I do think it's also execution because, I mean, it's like you could have had that contrast between like Blink and Nocturne, but that's just something that they just chose not to do. And I mean, at least one of those characters is a pre-established character. And I mean, Nocturne is benefiting from like the association with known characters. So it's not like she's a totally unknown commodity in a way. Mm -hmm. But even in terms of like the contrast between Megan and Rachel, like they're both sexy characters, but differently sexy. Mm -hmm. And like, I think that that's important. And even, you know, the way that that's expressed in their costuming right you know like megan is like shoeless wearing kind of like a slouchy necked like onesie like almost like she's going around in pjs (laughs) or something and like whereas rachel is like wearing like a version of her hound costume which is incredibly sexy but with like the spikes on it conveying kind of an untouchability and of course she's got like the very short hair and like megan has got the god alan davis with the big hair this is like kitty's hair is just this like beautiful like auburn mane that like fills the like frame he like must love drawing it so much yeah but but yeah i mean just sort of even the way sort of the art and the narrative work together to convey those sort of contrasts because i mean that's a good example to me of like everybody's sexy in an alan davis comic like it's just like that's his thing and yet i still like i think in his best moments and he doesn't always do this well but in his best moments he's able to con- like sort of convey sort of multiple ways of being sexy because you know like nightcrawler or kurt and brian are sexy in like very different ways and uh, you know Mm -hmm. like rachel and megan are sexy in quite different ways and the sexiness of kitty is like a you know a point of contention in as much as like (laughs) she's supposed to be 14 here and like there's so many letters in excalibur that are just like kitty pride thirst like odes which is like (laughs) oh you could have just like made her a little bit older and made this like a little bit less creepy but whatever it is what it is. I mean, at least Alan Davis does most of the time, like, you know, sexualize her a little bit less than the other two female characters. Although, again, he's not perfect, but um, I do admire him when he's at his best. So we've already talked about this a little bit, but I'm curious about because both of these series are such sort of like emotion and character driven series and you know the success or failure of them really like hinges on character i mean to the extent that the x-men universe is always like that it's always sort of a superhero soap opera with you know like high emotional stakes and you know marvel superhero comics in particular are always like that but x-men arguably even more so and arguably even more so in these settings where you have these outsider outsiders who are sort of banded together in these strange and scary and new places in a lot of ways that character really comes to the forefront so i was curious to ask both of you 
who your kind of favorite characters in these runs of these comics were, at least sort of from the comics that we read, because obviously different things happened to these characters over the course of these runs, but who really kind of stood out to you? And was there a scene that kind of made them stand out to you that made you be like, this is the character I'm going to be sort of interested in or hooked on for this comic book series? I think I will at least go with my the answer I had when the comics first came out. Uh, mimic in that I think he was supposed to be the reader, the the character that the reader gravitates towards in that sense. Uh, that uh, if we are assuming a male reader, then you uh, gaze along with Morph, but you aspire more towards Calvin. Points to Winnick. I think he does get a very good one-liner in the second issue. That uh, when it comes time to confront the Xavier who has been driven to vengeance for his captivity. Uh, evil Xavier goes, uh, any son would recognize his father's vision. And Mimic gets the line, uh, I know my father's vision. And the shadow silhouette of the lovely bone claws going <laughs> is the next. It's very dramatic, very comic booky, but 2001 Mike was very, uh, <laughs> oh, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, well, there, Exiles does get a lot of like, oh, the sh well, I mean, the shock of character deaths in Exiles is like a big thing, right? I mean, we mm -hmm. have the very sexy son of Rogue and Magneto getting killed at the end of the second issue, right? And I was a little bit shocked by that. I was like, oh, he's going to come back, right? Like, he's on the cover of the first issue. He's like a member of the team, right? And I was like, oh, no, he does not come back. He is just... Mm -hmm. Dead. And that happens, unfortunately, to Sunfire later as well, and various other characters over the course of the run. But I mean, yeah, the the Calvin thing is interesting. I like. I had so many thoughts about that as like such a like nineties two thousand thing. It made me think of like. I don't know, like Babylon 5 or something, you know, where it's always kind of like you have all these kooky characters, but then you have to have like this kind of like white dude hero at the center of mm -hmm. it to kind of like, you know, be that focal point character because we're scared of like decentering that perspective, right? And like <laughs> Mimic is just made so cool. He's like so much better than regular Mimic, who's like always just there to get jobbed by like through the gimmick of like he has all the powers of the x-men but isn't as good at using them and like it just like makes a point of how much better at teamwork and family like the x-men are and how bad it is when all those powers are possessed by a certain person i like what they briefly did with him in the 616 universe where he's in a bromance with the character that uh murdered all of alpha flight oh my it's, god it's an interesting character beat the only time they, I can remember encountering him recently or in like, I was rereading like late issue Excalibur and like they like encounter him yes. like, imprisoned yeah. somewhere. And it's just like, whoa, this like sexy guy just fell out of a tube. Who the hell is that? <laughs> mimic with like some really sexy long hair. What the hell? Yeah, full he beard. showed up to be naked and sexy for like a half a, half a comic. But um, yeah, anyway, that got us really off topic. I apologize. <laughs> Um, did you have like a favorite character or moment from either of these series, Andrew? Yeah, I think. Okay, so I, I want to say I do like Megan, and I like that she got brought into a bigger family than just Brian. Like that feels like a relief to me as a family yeah. character. Get her away from Brian. <laughs> but um, yeah. for me, Nightcrawler, I, I think in Excalibur, because I, I thought Nightcrawler had not been really done justice in issues of X-Men prior to Excalibur. Again, he, he got sort of sidelined. And I don't think he's a solo character. Like, like, for me, what makes Nightcrawler special is his relationships with the other characters. Mm -hmm. So having him be foregrounded within a group dynamic makes me very happy. And, and mm -hmm. for me, peak Nightcrawler in that sense, like my image of it is from this book where it's like a dude in a turtleneck standing on the Scottish Highlands talking about his emotions with Kitty Pride. I really like that, Kurt. So, oh, so that was that was a defining moment for me in this issue. I just, I, I cannot understand. I mean, like Excalibur Kurt is definitely the most popular Kurt. Like, I mean, for everyone. And why is it that we never get that version of him? Is it just like because we can't handle kind of that character, that perspective centered in the X-Men universe? Is it just because the religious aspect of the character has just been chosen as like the thing to emphasize? Like I never get why 
And it's interesting too, because even after he, sorry, this is turning into a Nightcrawler tangent, I apologize. But even after he <laughs> rejoins the X-Men and Alan Davis does write and draw it for a little while after that, he does him so differently than how he wrote him in Excalibur. And like, it's disappointing, I think, for most Nightcrawler fans that he has so much character growth in Excalibur. And then ever since then, he mm-hmm. is like, yeah. he regressed significantly. And Kitty has at various times too, but has also progressed in certain ways. And I just don't, other than some moments, I don't think Kurt's ever gotten back to kind of his Excalibur high, which is disappointing yeah, that- to me. Well, what I also wanted to ask both of you, because we've touched on this a little bit, but I would describe both of these series as sort of particularly cultish series. And um, and to what extent that extends from some of the things we've talked about, sort of the setting, the character, sort of the nature of the setup of these comics, because they're very unusual in that there are these sort of fringe titles. They are sort of at the outside edge of the X-Men universe and not interacting directly with sort of the main plots of that universe that much. And yet there are these series, I think both of them, though, more so Excalibur probably, are these really fondly remembered series. You know, people just like love that series. And I think that there's a bit of a feeling like that with Exiles as well. It's been a series that people keep trying to reboot. People still have like a very fond memory of these characters in this world. What in your mind makes a series such a cult series? What like makes it have sort of even, even by superhero comic book standards, kind of like that really, really sort of emotionally dedicated, intense kind of fan base that's like i mean i'm still like writing and reading excalibur fan fiction and that series ended like a million years ago and yet i still want to like answer questions about this world so like what is it about these series that kind of do that and again superhero comics are like that in general but i think these series like this that are sort of on the outside also attacked a particular kind of intense fandom why do you think that is well i think with excalibur the like novelty is is really the the main driving force behind it in part because of the tone which i mentioned which is completely inconsistent with anything we've ever mm-hmm. seen in the x universe uh, and then maybe a little bit of like the the britishness which i think leans mm-hmm. into the tonal qualities um I, I know i've made the argument to anna before that i think some of the sexual politics of excalibur are a little more again foregrounded perhaps because of the perception of that cultural difference uh, that that like um, British culture is more open about sexuality than North American culture at this time, so I, I think there's a kind of um, exoticism to it in that sense. Uh, and then just to leap ahead on Michael's one, one of the things that I want to say about Exiles that I think is remarkable about it is its sense of um, like philosophical existential dread uh, and it, it, its attacks on utilitarianism and stuff like that. I really enjoyed that. Uh, in excels so i cheated and answered twice i apologize yeah and maybe it's just for me anyway it's just getting sort of attached to sort of secondary characters or secondary worlds is sort of like it's a space that you can feel like you can make it your own in a way that you can't necessarily make other spaces your own and even though that's totally illusory right like i mean these are even though you know the audience or superhero comics is not huge these are still popular texts you're still liking popular characters and you still want your character and your world to be popular enough that there's other people who are like there with you and yet you know you can have this kind of like feeling like you're able to make this space your own because it's sort of situated outside that main space and it gives you that sense of like outsider individuality which is such a like key part of like x-men and superhero comics in general but like yeah i find both series kind of particularly effective in that way yeah what do you cultural think, capital right yeah yeah sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you no that's it that's that, that's my point just cultural capital <laughs> as usual you summed up my rambling and just like a phrase <laughs> so effectively but what do you think, Michael? What do you think if, if what makes these series cult series? I think uh, with Exiles in particular, it's the combination of being incredibly expansive, but also uh, self entirely self-contained, uh, mm-hmm. with the exception of one uh, crossover that is not fondly remembered. It can do so many things and it can explore, it can play with X-Men history in ways that the original stories couldn't. I mean, I'm looking up here for one of the plots in the Claremont run with that features a Wolverine that is governor general of Canada and married to Hercules. Like <laughs> that is not going to happen in regular Marvel anytime soon. It is awesome that it exists. Oh, I know. And it, Exiles can be fan fiction to an to that kind yeah. of extent. It can yeah. explore 
just the weirdest versions of the characters you can think of and let them be, let them interact and inhabit different forms. It is a lot of playing with that cultural capital. Do you recognize these people? Uh, do you? Ca- how many of these characters can you pick out of this action shot of a hundred different versions? Uh, it's it allows you to draw on your fan knowledge while still pushing it in a new direction. I love that idea of it as fan fiction, like because that makes total sense, and I think that that works. I mean, that's more emphasized in Exiles that, you know, it's like this sort of like a fan fiction thing where you're just going through all these different like places in the Marvel universe and sort of metatextually commenting on them, but also finding emotional beats within those things. Right. But I mean, Excalibur too, the way it's sort of foregrounding the perspectives of characters whose perspectives had not been foregrounded before, which is like a classic fan fiction maneuver, you know, to be like, what did whatever character who like wasn't focused upon in that main storyline feel and think about this storyline and to kind of like reframe things. I think you're like right that that has to be an element of sort of the cultishness of either ones. It's definitely like, again, as a Nightcrawler fan, it's just like <laughs> having his perspective like suddenly like foregrounded and having like even his like sort of having his goofiness almost treated seriously like an, as an aspect of his response to trauma like in this series it like gives him such a like level of maturity that he had only had sort of in in glimpses before and so it feels very fan fictiony on that level um god i don't like i could keep talking about both of these series for forever and <laughs> i'm sure both of you probably could too mm-hmm. any final thoughts from either of you things that you desperately want to get off your chest scenes yes. that we didn't talk about that we desperately should okay so so one thing i want to point out and i don't know what this is going to create friction again um i would argue that exiles owes a great deal to the cross time caper in excalibur maybe excalibur's mm-hmm. most famous arc like i know exiles comes more out of the age of apocalypse vision of the multiverse but uh there, there's a whole lot of cross time caper in there uh, as well that i think should be you know acknowledged i yeah i mean the cross time caper does a lot of similar things in terms of like sort of going to all these different worlds and kind of a very fan fiction-y way and like seeing and multiple versions of the characters yeah. yeah i do not know cross time caper enough to uh <laughs> defend or attack <laughs> it's not an attack <laughs> not an attack i think that is it other than as usual to ask ourselves for some recommendations perhaps related to what we read for this month um do you want to go ahead andrew yeah i'll I'll recommend a book that i mentioned already which is um x-men age of apocalypse uh, which has been collected in a lot of different editions it's it's very big unfortunately so it's hard to to get all of it in in some ways um but this was um kind of what led into exiles in a lot it's a an alternate universe x-men story which is, again, not something new. X-Men has been doing that since Days of Future Past. But it's really well executed, and the artwork is a little uneven, but when it's like Joe Matarera, it's it's pretty spectacular. Um, a really good series. Uh, and it often comes up, like, because I'm, I'm the advocate for Claremont, and everybody's like, you know, what else is good that Claremont didn't write? And the only two books that ever come up are, like, Grant Morrison uh, and Age of Apocalypse. Uh, and for Grant Morrison, I'll usually say... Sorry, but I don't really like Grant Morrison. <laughs> and for Age of yeah. Apocalypse, I have to say, yeah, you're right. That's a good one. So I'll, I'll rep that one. Yeah, Age of Apocalypse is so hard because I just, like, I mean, you know, for Nightcrawler stuff, like the X caliber series which is spelled the way excalibur was supposed to be originally spelled <laughs> let's like that's probably like the most interesting nightcrawler mystique like treatment that we've had like mm-hmm. i mean so in that universe he's like so well he's an anti-hero at the very least and um was raised by mystique and you know sort of his father is teased as being saber tooth but it doesn't really come around anyway but like yeah that like is potentially such an interesting series although i have to say like the ken lashley like 90s artwork of it like i've reread it recently and just like sometimes the excess of that era it's like a borderline unintelligible you're just like people are like screaming (laughs) at moments that they're supposed to be just talking and it's just it's it's hard it's like hard and i'm just like ah like i actually like elements of the excess but you just need the pacing not every single <laughs> it can't be yelling and then like that's fine like i love the big hair and the big muscles but can you just there needs to be an an element of quiet as well and if they could just infuse <laughs> it with that that would be i could go on but michael do you have a recommendation 
I've got a bit of a duel. Uh, first, I wanted to say very quickly, my brother had the Age of Apocalypse Nightcrawler action figure, and I was very jealous without having <laughs> any idea what this character was. Uh, He's got swords, which is always good. Yeah. The first and quick one is that I would recommend the Exiles arc immediately after this one, uh, which combines both the aforementioned Thunderbird as well as a three-parter featuring a world that's been taken over by Skrulls. Uh, both, like, I think the Skrulls is often pointed to as the highlight of the series, which is sad because it's like 12 issues into a 100-issue run, but mm -hmm. uh, it is still very good. Uh, the other one that if you like this type of story but are looking for, well, what what about, what if we did this but for DC? Uh, there's the Booster Gold 2007 series by Jeff Johns, Jeff Katz, and uh, let's see, uh, Dan Jurgens as artist. And that the first year of that is really good. Uh, it was a favorite comic of mine when it was coming out, especially the second arc where uh, Booster attempts to save his friend who was murdered a few years earlier. Oh, that's a good recommendation. I should read that. I would enjoy that. Thank you for that. Um, I'm just going to recommend more Excalibur because why not? I mean, the advantage that you really have, like reading it in retrospect, is that there are a lot of dangling plot threads that it takes like, you know, like <laughs> if you were reading it in real time, like Kitty gets separated from the team and then doesn't get like back joined with the team for like a year of publishing time. But if you're reading it in retrospect, you can kind of like not be bombarded with some of those dangling plot threads quite so much. And if you want to just skip the era in which Claremont and Alan Davis weren't on the book and just go right to the section where Alan Davis is writing and drawing it, in which a lot of the plot threads finally start to get resolved. Um, so I found it a real advantage to be reading in a retrospect and not in real time. So um, I would recommend more Excalibur, but don't be a purist and just read it all the way through if you're not feeling like the like five fill-in issues, just skip ahead because it does get better. Um, we don't really have anyone to thank because we're recording. Um, we can thank ourselves because we're recording from the comfort and <laughs> occasional disturbances of our own homes. I'll thank my um, partner's but... patience. Oh, <laughs> that's very nice. I won't thank my cat who like uh, was bugging me earlier in the podcast. But So I think that's it other than to advertise our next episode since we're back to regular monthly recording. We are going to be talking about... Jillian and Mariko Tamaki's This One Summer in conversation with Craig Thompson's Blankets. See you then.